0: Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit Cincinnati slash audit.
1: I'm Laura Lavoire, and this is Song Cycle. The official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I'm talking with Devon Tynes. Devon is, for lack of a better phrase, the consummate artist. Not only is he an extraordinary singer, he is a multi-talented, many-faceted storyteller, communicator, and arts leader. It was an honor and a pleasure to talk to him about the very real experiences we are in the midst of as a collective human race right now, and how he, through performance and story, is connecting and healing audiences one vocal phrase at a time.
2: All right. So Devon, I am just going to start right off. Can you tell the good listeners of our podcast who you are, what you do, and your connection to the Cincinnati community?
3: Hello, um, I'm Devon Times. I am a singer and creator and I have been getting to know Cincinnati just a little bit in the past couple of years. Um, I've sung with the Cincinnati Symphony in a really beautiful experience singing Chuban Stasperi's Wimpy Perry, and I spent some time around the city really enjoying um, how unique it is, and I'm really looking forward to being back.
2: Awesome. Yeah, no, Cincinnati is definitely it's kind of a funny meld of East Coast and South and Midwest all rolled into one and in this like, beautiful city of like old architecture with a lot of really kind of innovative new art things going on. Um, I'm not sure if during your time when you're in Cincinnati for the May Festival, I'm not sure if the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company is doing any shows but if you're into live theater and you like Shakespeare they they're great so if you have time and they're doing a show totally. I would definitely recommend checking I, out.
3: I really love live theater and I do love Shakespeare um you know in high school and even a little in college I was involved um I played Othello and Othello and I played Oberon and Midsummer Night's Dream and um one of my most seminal English teachers was a deep Shakespeare fanatic, but really making us dig into the roots of language. And also even yesterday, I was working on a song with a friend talking about how this this um, this young songwriter who wrote me a song really leaned into using iambic pentameter, which was so nice. It was so interesting to see that kind of, you know, um, strong basis, basis of rudimentary English used in modern songwriting.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's something, Um, At least for me as a singer and as someone who does a lot of art song, having good language, whether it's in English or German or Italian or Swedish or whatever language you're singing in, but having good language that's both descriptive and, I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of tasty. I think that's just, it's always, (laughs) always nice.
3: (laughs) Of course, yes, 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 yes.
2: Well, we are just so thrilled that you are taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule and just generally famous things going on to just be here and talk with us about your career and what you have going on and your connection to Cincinnati. So let's let's dive in. So Devon, one of the first questions that I ask my guests when they're on the show is to you, what is an art song and how does it differ from opera
3: well i think i've tried to spend a lot of time closing the gap between the two um there's a difference of scale potentially um but the thing that i think art song gets to hold more than opera gets to hold is its sense of direct communication its sense of poeticization within the words or at least prose represented in a clarity and poeticization and those are qualities that I would hope appear in opera or at least are trying to be drawn out of opera all the time. Um, and especially with The Wind Dresser, um, digging into that, it's been interesting to feel the different charts of the aesthetic world giant, because I really do find it's on such a large scale. It, it's, it's kind of even beyond operatic in that it's um, expansively symphonic. Um, maybe even on the order of well, an opera <laughs> um, example, Puccini. But his my favorite score is his Girls of the Golden West or On del West, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really love that score in particular because it really does reach an expansiveness that feels like the American West, even from Puccini's vantage. And I feel like Adams brings that same scale, but also is going between flavors of Lisbethi and Wagner and Copeland. Um, so even in that mix of feelings, um, there's there's quite a scale that kind of warps the idea of what, you know, intimacy can be, and bringing the idea of intimate engagement to, in all immersive sound uh, worlds.
2: I absolutely agree. And that's something that I, as a singer, and as someone who consumes art, I've had to sort of reconcile where it's like, you have, you have these moments in opera or something that can be so real and so intimate and so engaging. And yet in art song, you can have these moments, like look at any Strauss art song ever, you know, these giant sort of big emotions, big orchestra, so many things that can just seem so grand in what I guess is normally considered a fairly you know intimate sort of chamber art form. So, and that's actually something that I wanted to talk to you about, especially because I know in your work, you said you've been working to kind of close the gap uh, between opera and art songs. So can you talk about some of those collaborative projects that you've been working on and why you decided to take sort of that innovative approach to vocal music?
3: Definitely. Um, and in terms of, you know, closing that gap, it's almost like um, art songs and song cycles are operas that have not been staged yet. <laughs> I think they all have the potential in there to do that. And even so, it's like the staging is miniature in such a way that it's very focused. You know, every artist that walks on stage or into a context to deliver that music is essentially staging themselves in a way that hopefully tells that story as honestly and directly as possible. And in that way of thinking, um, my interactions with art song and recital form have led to a very considered approach to how things are presented and to how I am embodying or you know utilizing my own experience and self to um, speak through the piece itself. And that, I think, um, at least in some of the work that I've been up to, shows itself in the journey that I've had to figuring out what my recital would be. Um, I had the blessing and privilege of being invited to sing a debut recital at Carnegie Hall um, that would have happened at the top of the pandemic, but will happen um, in not too long. And it was about, you know, altogether, uh, when I really think about it, it was almost a four year journey to realize what that program would be um, because I thought that, you know, if I had this opportunity to stand in the crook of a piano, as many, many singers have done, and deliver something that is quintessentially myself, a statement that I felt like I wanted to say the most at that time, um, I would need to be very reflective and very considered about what those choices would be. And so it really all began with um, (laughs) sitting by a freshwater pool on a mountainside in Vermont, Next to one of my best friends and collaborators, uh, Zach Winokur. We work together in the American Modern Opera Company, which he's the artistic director of. And just sitting there in this place where we sit often with a lot of friends and colleagues, um, saying, You know, I have this recital opportunity. It's kind of years away, but I don't know what I would want to do as my real debut recital tour. And we started to brainstorm together and we threw about 80, 85 songs onto a list, and it was everything from German art song to um, foray, or well, French art song, but specifically foray, who I love, um, mm-hmm. to a vast amount of spirituals, um, but also gospel, which is to be distinct from spirituals, <laughs> and a number of songs that friends have written, or composers that I'd interacted with have written. Um, some, you know, more personally and some that I think more people know about, but in leading through all of those, it was about trying to choose the things that told the story of whoever I was at the time. And it took years because, you know, you change over time and there were kind of different incarnations and aspects that, you know, lines through that list of songs that felt better at different times or felt truer to what I was feeling like I wanted to say. And um, that exploration spun off into so many different things. Um, One of the first things it turned into was a show, actually, called Were You There? Um, The songs that stuck out the most immediately, you know, after singing through and thinking through and feeling through, um, were the spirituals, Um, things adjacent to the Black gospel tradition I'd grown up with, Mm -hmm. but also in the larger context of liturgical music, which I've always felt Really important, and um, it coincided with um, the time in 2015 and 2016 when, or in my, you know, early adulthood, for the first time again, um, the killings of Black people at the hands of police were at the forefront of the news, which we clearly know is a continuous cycle and just continues to rise and fall in the general consciousness, but. It had risen again um, in those years. And I knew that what I wanted to say or address was finding a space where people could reflect on these tragedies and more emotionally engage them in order to connect their own you know, existence and humanity to honoring and continuing the memory of these people. So what's, what came out is a collection of songs that um, Told a story of reverence. That told a story of being reflective of the past. And it 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 started as a recital, as a show, literally in the theater. We did it first for the American Repertory Theater, and there is a baby grand piano, and I stand in the crook of it, and I sing Handel's um, "Leave Me, Loaves of Light" from Simulate, which mm-hmm. a really beautiful, um, yeah, an aria from kind of in opera cantata operetta situation and it's about um you know being laid to rest or it's about death and then i step into a space that's away from the piano so it's almost as if the recital um kind of propelled into a more theatrical space or even if we were in a recital hall it would feel like the space transformed and what you see in the space is a series of sculptures um, and we don't really know what they are at that point. Um, they're they're kind of holes with light bulbs on them, and they're at different heights. And um, I sing a series of spirituals, including Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? and Sweet Little Jesus Boy, which is, you know, talking about the tragedy of crucifixion. That's my grandmother's favorite spiritual. She makes you sing it every Christmas. Um, and over the course of these songs, you come to realize that, the statues represent different victims of racist police brutality, and that the heights of the statues are proportional to the ages of the victims at the time of their death. And that is more fully recognized when I sing a song by my friend, Matthew that Mm -hmm. that's a poem by Walt Whitman called A Clear Midnight. And um, so it's kind of turning this idea of, you know, American homage to to death, to rest, um, and and directs it even more so towards these light bulbs, which you kind of realize are a memorial. Um, And then, and the song Amazing Grace, you come to realize that my voice actually controls the amplitude of the light bulbs. So when I sing louder, the light bulbs get brighter, and when I stop singing, the light bulbs will dim and by the end of the piece once you realize these are victims my voice is actually alighting them um, i invite the audience to sing amazing grace and all of the light bulbs turn on of course they're very bright because there's so much sound powering them mm-hmm. and then i leave and the audience is left to keep singing amazing grace and they realize i think that when they stop singing all of the light goes out and they will be left in the dark so it's kind of a challenge to see how long they'll be using and adding their voices to this engagement, how long they'll be actually, you know, complicit in keeping this um, idea of memorializing and engaging these tragedies alive. So that's what one draft of the recital (laughs) turned into.
2: That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's, wow. Sorry, I'm going to, I'll let you continue. I just, that's, yeah. No, no, no.
3: I I could
2: ramble forever. (laughs) No, well, I mean, I'm sure you'll you'll continue to talk about this due to my next question, but one of the things that I've noticed about your career um, is that you have found a way to, and you mentioned this, sort of escape from the crook of the piano and turn recital and performance into an interactive experience, into something that is more than just I'm performing at you or inviting you into a world that I'm creating. It's a a collaboration between you and the other people who are making music with you, but also with the people who are in the performance with you as well, who are watching or engaging in that way. And one of the things that has been so fascinating to me about the power of art song and your career and how this all sort of ties together is using music, using text, as like putting ourselves in the lineage of great storytellers and allowing music and art song and performance to be a form of storytelling that not only is us like I said conveying information to other people but inviting us to share in an experience a life experience and For you, especially, at least from what I've noticed about your career is you're using that storytelling and allowing people to share in an experience to bring about social awareness and social change, which I think is so, so incredibly important and exactly what art song and music and opera and poetry can do and you're doing it, which is So awesome. So can you talk to me a little bit more about what you see the role of storytelling and music and art song and opera and stage performance and all of this? Can you tell me kind of what your thoughts are um, in terms of that being a good or viable pathway towards social change?
3: Completely. I feel like The experience that I have in performing, in making things, in collaborating, in being with and in front of audiences, um, I think I've always found it a really unique situation to be in, a unique context to operate within. Mm -hmm. And I think I try to operate in the context or even in my life with greater sensitivity and presence. You know, if you walk on stage to sing something with or in front of an orchestra, um, I, I think if we're if we're sensitive and present with that experience, we'll realize there are a lot of people here. There are a lot of different bodies, different perspectives, different existences all here together to, you know, do or allow something, whether it's every individual member of the orchestra or every person in the audience, just allowing oneself to drink out of some sort of... Um, constriction that that context i am performer i am standing here i am delivering to you but to actually say we are all humans in this space at one time and i have the blessing and privilege to have the attention of that mass of people at any given time then i think what i choose to say and what i choose to do in that context should be very intentional and should be as honest as possible because we would want to intentionally You know lie to so many people who have actually afforded you the space to connect with them um and i think that really goes to just the root of what i think people's music is or music can be um i grew up playing the violin i was in orchestra and played the violin for 14 years before putting it down and um i was always more fascinated by what the audience was doing and feeling, than you know, looking at the music too much. I would try to memorize my parts as soon as possible, so that I could just be more fully engaged. And um, even in that context, you know, th- there are no words. Things are abstract, so it's all um, even more ephemeral. It's all based on you know, there's a lot of bass happening, or we're playing very fast, or this is extremely you know, emotional and gentle, um, but just. Trying to be very clear with what the emotional landscape of something is. Trying to be sensitive to what that is and sensitive to how it might come across. You know, when you have all these bodies gathered, there is some general feeling or consciousness, and I think it's really about um, respecting and engaging that. And I guess that equals storytelling if it's sustained enough.
2: I c- I totally agree, and I think that there. It's funny I've been talking with a lot of my friends and colleagues over the course of the pandemic and everyone seems to be watching the same TV shows. And I was like, why, hmm. why is everyone watching the same TV show? I don't, I don't get it. And I thought about it. And after talking to a lot of people, what I realized is it's like, even from afar, we are all sharing collectively in a similar set of experiences and emotions while engaging with the same story.
3: Yeah and yeah, i I, think,
2: yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a very profound way to look at netflix right now <laughs> but it struck me because i think that that's something that you know these different sort of digital platforms like netflix or you know any other sort of video or audio storytelling something or other have really found in 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 these covid times is this ability to connect people over vast distances, even when we aren't able to gather together to experience something together in a room, we can still connect through the power of the story that's being told to us because we're all experiencing it together in that way.
3: Completely. Think- and- Go ahead. <laughs> Oh no no no! I was just agreeing so much. Um, I it's it's really incredible that that is I think how you know <laughs> part of humanity has found a way to hold on to each other. Um, I listen to this podcast called Keep It, which is pretty great. Kind of a broader or even um, marginalized identity perspective on pop culture, and mm-hmm. very commonly talking about things that are in the quote unquote zeitgeist at the moment. And it's it's really all always talked about in a way of, you know, we we love to hold up or at least connect through certain pieces of medium or certain pieces of art. And even if it's not the best show or not, it's just exciting (laughs) to be able to to talk about it, to have a common ground to have a discourse. And um I love I mean I studied sociology as an undergrad and it, it always comes back for me, to um, Durkheim, who talked a lot about, you know, how we are inherently a social organism and how we must connect to each other in order for that organism to live. So it's cool that that, you know, continues to find ways to survive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this this ties into what I wanted to to ask you next is, you know, I feel like it's so hard, and I'm I know you get this because you know you come from a conservatory background and a certain type of training as a as a classical singer but you know it's really hard to break out of the mold that people create for you you know they say you have you are a classical singer therefore you must sing in this way you must sing here you must wear this you must perform this repertoire you have to program your recitals with know a certain number of languages from a certain set of musical periods and you know we we have a lot of a lot of structure put around us to sort of help us quote unquote make it right and the thing Mm. that again just is so fantastic about you and your career is you you saw those uh sort of boundaries or you saw those um structures in place for your career and you said yeah that's great but I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do, I'm going to take those structures and I'm going to rearrange them. I'm going to alter them. I'm going to bust out the hot glue gun and put something together that's different and special and new. And I'm sure for you that that came with a lot of challenges, but a lot of really fantastic rewards. So what, what for you in this process of sort of you know, developing your artistic voice, what have been some of those challenges and rewards that you've experienced along your
0: path?
3: Right, um, yeah, in terms of seeing the structures that be and interacting with them to move anywhere, um, conservatory, or at least the version of conservatory that I interacted with is a very interesting and unique apparatus. And I think it comes from love, actually. Um, I think there's a long, beautiful tradition of classical singing, of singing songs, even um, from many, many different cultures, but also, of course, in America, that grew out of folk, that grew out of um, different indigenous populations. that grew out of all sorts of people that were new of indigenous, of course, but all of that, you know, mixing with Europe and turning into some sort of thing that we call um, a version of classical performance, the one that, you know, even you and I interact with. And I think in the 20th century, that started to show itself in some sort of clarifying structure. Um, there are recitals, there are opera performances that, you know move through different sorts of contexts, even opera moving through Broadway and then becoming more formalized in their own sorts of theaters and contexts in the American context. And I think that it feels like at least to me the conservatory developed in a way to hold space for um, propagating that tradition, propagating that structure of creation. You know, I think the recital, um, as you described it, um, is, is kind of an artifact that at a certain point got pinned to the wall of the museum of how we can do things, basically. And conservatories got really good at maintaining those artifacts in that museum. And in essence, out of love of wanting to say, oh, this is so beautiful, and this group of artists has done such amazing work that we want to you know, invite other people into that tradition and hold it and go forward. Um, And it's tricky though, because if you hold on to something so tightly um, in that invitation of other people, you can constrict them to things rather than holding those people as well. And so there's a whole, you know, battery of great and beautiful and wonderful singers through decades. And because their work is so appreciated and so loved, Sometimes that work is held in a place that does not allow space for other interpretations or further movement. So it's this interesting calcification of the idea of, you know, holding a tradition. In fact, the the wall, the hands that hold that thing with so much love can become immobile. And I see that being of detriment to friends, to colleagues, um, when it's, about you know you're supposed to enter into this grand and beautiful tradition held at the center of these hands that are now made out of travertine and there's no way in and you will always try to ape what is being held in the center of that but it's really important now that those hands be allowed to soften and open and acknowledge that many different ways of making music and being can exist together in conversation with each other in the same space so I think what I've been up to has been, you know, moving beyond those walls, those boundaries, those hands and finding other things to uh if we continue this metaphor, which is to <laughs> wet myself with, to, you know, continue to that, that I found um, you know, restorative or nourishing and you know, coming from the conservatory context, that all that that connection always being there. Um I, I think I, I've hopefully been able to show a little bit of possibility for what can happen if you stand a little bit more firmly in your own conviction and belief in the power of music making. Um, and that might sound gra- grandiose, but I really hope that it can be taken on an individual level, meaning the power to be really reflective of oneself and really specific of one's own lived experience and emotion so that when you choose to take that space with and in front of people, the thing that you're saying is is utterly um, sound. And when that is true, you are taking up space that can then join with everything you're connected to.
2: Absolutely. And you you mentioned that you're like you know this is something that I found nourishing, and so and it it, it worked with how your vision of music and everything just sort of came together for you and it's I really do I wouldn't say like I follow every single person I've ever encountered in the music world like it's not like I follow everybody's career super closely all the time but whenever things pop up one of the like you're just one of those people that seems to pop up whenever I'm checking in on the music world and Mm -hmm. I really do think that your vision and your sort of openness to expanding what it means to be a classical artist really is turning you into a huge leader in, in music performance. And I think that everyone I talk to when I'm like, yeah, you're a leader in the arts, you know, you're, you're doing great things. Everyone's like, oh no, like I'm just doing what I love. I think I think doing what you love has turned you into someone who is forging a new path and a new way for people to to program recitals or to do performance or to be a classical musician, you know, whatever that means. So I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are as you're sort of emerging into this I guess new position as an artist in terms of, you know, your vision as a person and as a musician. What does it mean to you to be An arts leader, a musical leader in the 21st century.
3: Hmm. Thank you for that. And
2: listen, I I just tell it like it is.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you tell it very nicely. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, um, you know, as I continue to say and I continue to believe it's been an extreme. Blessing and privilege to have had the experiences that I've had, to have the opportunities that I've had. And in that same vein, I would hope that other people can find and see their own experiences and their own opportunities and whatever skill they have to, you know, like you said, do what they love. And because of some odd alchemy of the universe, I've been given more of a platform that grows beautifully, I hope to just continue to encourage other people to journey down that path um, of connecting with themselves and making it a very overt connection to what they do in their lives, no matter what that is. So if you're singing a song, let it be the space for you to connect to yourself and thus other people. If you are making a pie express your love of engaging in pleasure you know with that pie but also if you're saving a life in any capacity i mean there's even more direct ways that people's physical effort and mental engagement go to better and connect to the world around them that might seem very broad but i think i'm just hoping to invite other people into themselves as i try to do that for myself
2: i think that that's a really important point to make i know talking to young singers and i mean you know 10 15 years younger than myself there is sort of a burgeoning desire to fit the mold but i see them struggling against it because it doesn't it doesn't work with their sense of identity or it doesn't work with their sense of artistry and i think having someone who says hey you actually have a very valid voice you have a valid experience and there's a reason that you have been created with the gifts talents and proclivities that you have and it's okay to to embrace those and make them something make them into something that gives you artistic life and i don't think enough people tell you that as and I mean you as in the royal you just generally as you're going through your artistic growth and your learning you know from whenever you start your your musical life whether that's you know at three years old playing the piano or 18 years old taking your first voice lesson or whatever not enough people tell you like okay yeah there's a certain level of instruction that you may or may not need but it's also okay to embrace that which is relevant to your experience and enhances your experience as a person and as an artist. Not enough people just say, it's okay to to embrace that and to do it. And you don't just have to do, I guess, what you're told all the time.
3: Yes. And to that, you know, the most inspiring and grounding and you know, thing I continue to turn over in my own head that has been of service to me that that someone very close to me told me is you are enough. You are enough alone. Just you person breathing in and out, living your life is enough. You don't have to put yourself in the context of some other mold or try to define yourself by the parameters that someone else has set out because what are those things? They're they're projections. They're abstractions. They are unreal to who you actually are at any given time. So if you are not trying to realize, you know, the presence and sensitivity in your own existence, how, how can you survive in some other conception of how you should exist?
2: Absolutely, and it's funny that you should say someone close to you said that you are enough, because one of the very one of the first guests I had on this podcast was Margo Garrett, and I asked Margo at the end of our podcast, I just said, you know, if you were to give some advice to the good folks who are listening, I said, what would it be? And she said, you are enough. And that like, Amen
3: on this Sunday that we are talking, Amen.
2: Right. I just, yes. and on mother's day, the mother of all beautiful music, Margo Garrett. But uh. <laughs> I just, after she said that something about that, just that hit something different inside of my person, because I feel that so many of us want to just say what's on our hearts and we don't always feel like we have permission to do that. And her telling that to me and you reiterating that to me today just it's like it gave me a new permission slip to say it's okay to to put out there what's on your heart as an artist. And I think uh, that's very special.
3: Ah uh, well, I'm really glad. And you know, and and I can't iterate enough how it you know it's a really it's something to continue to contend with you know because it's like well am i when am i seeking validation when am i seeking permission um from other people and also from yourself uh, you know it's growing trust growing trust in your own feelings and intuitions and it it's it's an unending thing but uh, but it just says you know (laughs) Hopefully you continue to be present for the rest of your life. You continue to be present with this process of saying, you know, I am enough. And as I change, all of those versions of me are also that.
2: Absolutely. And speaking of Margot Garrett and amazing people who have mentored me in my life, I am really curious for you over the course of your um, career and, uh, your, your experience, both as a student of music and a student of life. Um, what have been some of your most memorable projects and some of your, your mentors and collaborators who you feel have been impactful on you developing as a person and as an artist?
3: Well, in the project of life, I would have to say my biggest mentors have been Um, My family, um, my mother who passed away, my brother, my grandparents who primarily raised me, um, offering me a way of looking at the world that meant everyone is to be respected. Um, I grew up with that being modeled in very many ways, and I continue to find now that I reflect on it more Um, that that is really the foundation on which I stand. This foundation that every single person being that you encounter deserves equal and utmost consideration. Um, So that's been a starting place. Um, And in terms of some memorable projects or interactions, um, one of the first directors I, I worked with extensively is Peter Sellers, and he was absolutely amazing at affirming this idea of you are enough or however you are existing at this given moment through this material is what the show is. Um, and having you know the space of exploration with him was very seminal. Um, also my dear colleague, Julia Bullock, being a, her own force of nature and inspiration, and in, in terms of research and contextualizing music, and rigor in preparing it, um, all for the purpose of having the most direct and singular communicative experience with an audience or in performance. Um, I continue to be in awe at the magnitude of her artistry, um, and also, yeah, one of the one of the highlights of my life has been being able to perform a show i co-created called the black clown which is um, a realization of a lincoln hughes poem and i created that with friend michael schachter composer and also who i call my art husband zach Winterberg. um <laughs> that was one of the longest um and developing i guess yeah, just, just blessings of a, of a collaboration because it's been the ongoing realization of things I've wanted to say the most, but then also the opportunity to say that with other people. Um, there's an amazing cast of all Black singers and actors. Um, together, we have 13 people, and some of the most rewarding isn't even the word, just life-changing and riveting and grounding and humanizing experiences I've had in performing have been with that group in a context that we created together where we are our fuller selves expressing, you know, every bit of angst and trauma of our past, but also jubilation at looking toward the future. Um, Just the sheer visceral intensity of presence that I've experienced with that group of people and in that
2: project um, have been pretty seminal in my life. Yeah, I think every person in existence needs to have an experience like that where you, you have a moment where you look around a room and you realize that you are experiencing something so profound and so important that you're in it as a group together and that you are making something that in the moment is huge and profound but has major implications outside of itself. And that is, I can absolutely see why that would be an absolutely incredible experience.
3: Definitely, definitely, definitely.
2: Devon, I wanted to ask you about, now that we're talking kind of about projects and things, um, feel a sense of obligation to ask you about Cincinnati May Festival and what you're performing. And, you know, just talk to me a little bit about about that and um, where it kind of fits in terms of stuff you're working on right now.
3: So I am singing John Adams' The Wound Dresser, and it's kind of felt like a piece I've been slated to sing for a while. Um, it's come up, and it's something I think I'm more ready to contend with. And I, I've sung a lot of John Adams. I deeply love his music and you know have had the blessing of premiering a new work by him and also touring one of my favorite works in classical music, which is is el nino oratorio yeah and this, this piece in particular the wound dresser is a very i think special world um even in all of his music in that it's it's very prismatic and takes the idea of illuminating what it takes for a single person to care for a single person to such an intimate, but then ultimately beyond the universe scale, kind of like what we had been talking about with, you know, he's pulling on the aesthetics of Wagner and Rispy, um and Copeland, but all of these ideas of expansiveness in order to give kind of this most intimate text of Walt Whitman, what John says is his most intimate text, um, the space to fill, you know the universe in a way and um further to that i've been you know honing in on what it means for me to sing this text at this time mm. and i think it's commonly understood as a text for you know a, a human taking care of another human in a medical context you know a health care worker which is critically important and present and also i've tried to think what does it mean you know, when I am on that stage in and with that audience and actors group of musicians, and what am I actually saying? I'm talking about, you know, applying bandages, helping to wash off the sloth of wounds, talking about bullets that have pierced through necks and blood that washes into the grass. It's extremely visceral, it's extremely specific about the medical care um, of an individual in the midst of battle. And I think one of the interesting opportunities because the text is so specific that it can be engaged metaphorically. It can be engaged metaphorically as not exactly one just taking care of one's you know immediate bodily and physical needs, but one endeavoring to take care of a broader need within a person or even psychic needs. You know, what is it to bandage? bandage a wounded ego because the ideology has been shot through the neck or what does it mean to collect you know the blood that has fallen from someone's um, unrealized self-realization what does it mean to look at people who i am perplexed by in terms of their choices but perhaps see that you know those choices have led to some sort of harm and to endeavor as a person myself to see that damage and that harm and endeavor to help repair or mend or offer solace. So I'm really excited to sing this song because I think it can be a way for me to, in a very visceral way, look at the audience, look at individuals and say, I see you. I see your pain i see your wounds or i at least sense that they are there as we have those as all of us are humans and i am endeavoring to offer what i can to mend and offer solace
2: yeah and i feel like you said this is this feels very timely for so Mm. many reasons because i feel like right now especially at least here in the states we are suffering from very real physical violence and physical trauma every day. I feel like there was a time a couple weeks ago where every time I would open the news and I check it a couple times a day, it would say like, there was another mass shooting somewhere and eight people have died, mm. you know, or um, another black man was killed by a white police officer. I live in Minneapolis. And so I've been right in the middle of, of a lot of this stuff. And I feel like, you know, we we see this actual physical violence happening every day and it leaves an emotional like wound on everyone who has any sense of humanity. If you have any sense of empathy, you see these things happening and you realize that it is painful and tragic and horrifying and I don't know, like I said, if you have any sense of empathy, you feel, if I feel that there's something that I should be able to do to help bandage the wound, to help offer care. You know, I might I might not be the best when it comes to actual blood, um, if it's other people's, but, you know, and I think that that's something that's so beautiful about what you're talking about with this, this piece that you're singing is that you, both as an artist and as a person, you have the opportunity to say, like, I see you as a person, but as an artist, you can say, I'm also here to help. I think that there is such a beautiful way to offer your, your hand, essentially, to, to help, to offer some kind of solace or comfort as a singer that so many, so many people, Appreciate and don't realize that they need until they have it. Like it sounds so morbid, but one of my favorite things to do is to sing for funerals, because Mm -hmm. you have that opportunity to offer comfort to people when they are most in need. And I think that that's really
3: special. Yeah, um, this past pandemic, (laughs) the past pandemic, (laughs) because it's cyclical. In this past year, in this pandemic, um, part of what I've been up to is um, singing on Zoom for COVID and cancer patients through a collaboration that American Modern Opera Company has with um, Mount Sinai Hospital in California. And that has been some of the most surprising and Affirming music making that I've ever, you know, been been able to do, because um, just like you say, it's it's offering a space and a communication when it is it's not um, it's not extra. It's not, it's just it's not for entertainment. It's because you know someone needs somewhere to exist beyond the trauma that they're in, and. Specific to, you know, singing in a funeral context, um, one particular patient that I sang for, an older black woman who was in the hospital, and the session was in the morning, her time. And I had been told right before getting into the session with her that her husband had also been in the hospital, both of them there because of COVID, and he had passed away the night before. And so, you know, in COVID people can't have funerals mm-hmm. and even they weren't really able to spend and see to have time with each other. And so in essence, the session that I had with her was in, in some ways in place of a funeral. Um, both of us, you know, identified that we came from a similar church background experience and some of my favorite songs to sing are spirituals and hymns. So I asked her what she wanted me to sing. And I basically sang through songs that I grew up singing in funerals. And so together in that moment through Zoom, we essentially had a funeral for her husband. And um, it's it's just been an experience that I'll hold, I think, for a very, very long time. But... um.
2: I'm getting a little emotional as you're telling me this. Like that's so beautiful. <laughs>
3: oh. Oh it 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 took it took a lot and um you know I I left that session and was pretty emotionally rocked for um quite a long time.
2: After. I believe and
3: it. it took <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, further to the potential of music making, if it's done in a context that is very present and sensitive with you know the situation at hand um and further to that you know talking about the many types of wounded that we've encountered this past year um something i'm specifically interested in addressing with singing the wound dresser is the idea of what is the wound inflicted upon the wounder Um, what is the trauma that happens to someone the psychological trauma that happens to someone causing physical trauma. Um, you know, uh, another amazing colleague um, based baritone, Ryan McKinney, You mm-hmm. and I spoke a while ago about a project he was engaged in. And it in one sense dealt with what is the ongoing reciprocal trauma of a lineage or a white supremacist lineage of racism. What does it mean to exist as part of the lineage from people that caused a great deal of trauma and what does that do to one's emotional existence and one's psyche and how he was trying to explore how he as a white man could offer space or engage the idea of white people engaging the kind of more hidden, deeper reciprocal trauma that has been amassed from an ancestry of causing mass trauma. And so in stepping into that space myself as a wound dresser, I am seeking in a way to address and assess and see the wounds that exist from that larger trauma that we don't often access. I know that the audience for this context and many of the contexts that I operate within will be primarily white, will mm. be primarily of privilege. And I would be remiss if I wasn't trying to directly speak to and engage what I feel that population of people might be feeling or connected to, even in a way that they don't want to or have not connected to.
2: Yeah, and that you that is just enormously profound because that is something I mean as a white person myself have had to had had to look at and say okay where does where do these things that have been passed down to me come from what what are how are they affecting me how are they affecting other people and where can I where can I grow where can I learn where can I heal and it's um I think that that is an enormously powerful tool that you're harnessing to to not just look at it from the wounded, but look at it from the wounder as well. And that's just, again, the beautiful power of art to be able to to be open to any and all who decide to be present for it. So I think that's a really beautiful thing that you're able to, to embrace all of that and to have the wherewithal to recognize who's going to be in your audience to to approach them and say hi i have a story to share with you that i think is really important for you to hear it might be hard but we're all in this experience together and you know it's okay to be in this space because we're all like you were saying earlier treating everyone and every person who's in that space with you with dignity and um, respect and you know that we're we're all humans and we are enough and deserve to be there so i think that's that's really fantastic and i'm really <laughs> mad at myself i'm not going to be in cincinnati for this performance
3: <laughs> ah. <laughs> ah, i hope it'll be recorded or broadcast or something i'm sure it will i'm I gonna hunt it down this <laughs> <thing this morning. laughs> cool
2: Um, well, Devon, I, we're, we're just about at the end of our time here, but, um, I do have a couple other questions for you. Um, I want to go back to what you were talking about when you had these sessions with folks at Mount Sinai and, you know, over (laughs) zoom and over, you know, FaceTime and all these other things. And one of the things that I think is, is great about Covid nineteen and the pandemic—if anything can be great—we'll call it a silver lining. Um, is we have found sure. if we found opportunities to bring performance mediums and platforms into the twenty first century. And so, mm-hmm. what what does that? What do you, as a person, as an artist, kind of see um, in terms of evolving performance medium? going forward? Like what, what do you foresee as someone who is an innovator and an artist? What do you see as kind of sticking around and helping evolve the art form even further into the 21st century?
3: Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens um, over time. Um, I was talking with a friend even a few days ago about what is life going to be once we, you know, emerge into not the old, you know, a new, an old world, but, but a new world that has vestiges of what was before. And I say that vestiges because it, we were saying, you know, maybe it seems like there'll be at first an immediate backlash of people being like, we must get back to how things were and we're going to, and, and, and in a number of scales, you know, meeting in person, socializing in person, um, the, the hecticness of social interaction in life. And then we were saying maybe after that first extreme wave, there'll be kind of a, it'll reside into whatever this new way of being actually is. And that will definitely be informed by the extreme variety of change and new experiences that we've had to, you know, create together new modes of being. Um, Will people say, I don't have to do as much or I can be more considered when I'm being, you know, in in a socializing context, or even what it's meant to be very indoctrinated into allowing space for other people, you know, being vigilant about six feet. Not that we will all continue to try <laughs> to keep six feet apart, but I think there will be, I hope there will remain some continued heightened awareness of other bodies in space. Um, and in terms of performing, um, it seems like, You know, theaters have been dark, stages have been dark for a while, and we've had to use all the tools of our mediums in different ways. So I'm really fascinated to see how people, you know, embody and, you know, fill stages again, and if that will be some sort of um, incarnation of the way things happened before, or if people find um, more unique ways to utilize space and medium to tell the story they need to tell. And it's also been amazing. Um, there's a recent article in the Washington Post, um, of a writer saying, you know, one thing they hope that has, that stays from COVID is the opera short or is the, the short film, you know, that's made from um, a more classical music context. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that has been, you know, the journey throughout this pandemic is to own up to what the, the real quote unquote proscenium actually is at this time. You know, we do not have the stage. We do not have, you know, incredibly attuned device of putting an audience to focus on something. We have an iPhone, we have a computer screen. And for that, we've had to go through the growing pains of what it means for an older or art form that hasn't utilized those mediums to actually find out and grow legs in what? how does it exist? How do we exist in this other context? And interestingly enough, there are extreme positive examples of how those prosceniums can be of success in the more quote-unquote popular world in movies, music, videos, and so on. There are ways to do compelling storytelling through those contexts, so it'll be interesting to see what it means to move into more digital formats. But in terms of live music performing, of course, nothing can replace the incredible, unfathomable energy and connection of being with people and an audience in a closed space. So I'm hoping that when we do re-enter those spaces, the specialness of what they are and how the tools that we have in this space even are utilized to hold that specialness that we've been able to identify over this past year.
2: Man, I feel like I've been an emotional wreck for the past couple days because I'm actually I'm in Cincinnati mm-hmm. right now. We were um, yesterday recording performances for our final concert, which is going to be released um, in in the ne- next week. and i um I actually had the opportunity to listen to live singing for the first time in like a year and Mm. not only that but it's for the concert that we're doing is a collaboration with Nats and it's we commissioned Mm -hmm. 10 Black composers to write one song for um, each of our duos and like they got to work with like amazing composer mentors and like it was so special to hear this new music with like incredible text incredible music writing incredible performance and just like it was just me and like two other people sitting in the room listening to these (laughs) these performers perform this new music like I was sitting there like I'm listening to this world premiere and I was just sobbing because we Mm -hmm. we haven't had that experience in so long and You know, I've talked to pessimists who say, you know, I don't think live performance is going to come back in the way that it was in the before times. And I say, if anyone had the experience that I had this past weekend of listening to this new music from people who are finally getting an opportunity to, like, be heard, it's the most beautiful and profoundly moving thing. And I think we're going to come back bigger and better than ever. So I'm really excited about that. And I think, you know, in the same way, I've your career is just one of those that I think I'm just going to keep following because of, it's like you're the barometer for um, artistic and musical innovation and what it means to just truly be an artist. So I'm really excited to see see what happens for you over the next, you know, however long. I think it's going to be really fantastic to, to see that. And I'm really excited.
3: Thank you. I, I'm deeply, deeply excited to, and very thankful as
2: well. All right, Devon, I have one last question for you. Um, and then say adieu, but I always ask each of my guests to leave our audience with a piece of advice. It can be funny or not. Um, it can be philosophical or silly. It doesn't matter um, But s- just a piece of advice that you would that you would leave us with.
3: Mm.
2: And you can't pick you were enough. Margo Garrett picked that one.
3: Fine. Margo's <laughs> beautiful genius. Let's hold on to that. And <laughs> I can add <clears throat> All the versions of you are enough.
2: I love that. That's great. Yeah. Because sometimes you're not always quite, you're not always just feeling like yourself and that's okay. Right. Sometimes you're right. feeling 90%, 90% <laughs> is all you could do. 30% is all you could right. do. And that's okay. Or
3: also, you you know, even looking in your past, you might have regrets about ways that you've been or, you know, certain insecurities about, oh, I wasn't good at that or this, or even looking, you know, at the future things. And just know it's like, no, at any given time, you're exactly enough for where you should have been. And that is true now. And true into the future.
2: And on this Sunday, I went to church with Devontines.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I know I cried while recording this episode, so there's no shame if you did too. Remember, art heals us, and stories connect us. And at the end of the day, you, just as you are, are always enough. You can catch us here every other Monday with new episodes of Song Cycle. And be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org and on all the usual socials. Until next time,
3: just keep singing y'all.